This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gab Fest for Thursday, May 18th, the I Love Dick edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios today, we have Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. June is out today. So instead, we have a special guest with us, Susan Dominus, who is a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. Hi, Susan. Good morning. So I am going to jump right in because um, one of the things we're talking about is a great story that Susan wrote about. So let's get going. Um, The first thing we're going to discuss is Susan's story in the New York Times Magazine about open marriages. Are they better? Are they the future? Oh, this is my favorite topic, Susan. We'll get to it. Um, but And I'm particularly interested in your journey through it. Um, all right. Second, I Love Dick, Jill Soloway's new Amazon series based on the 1997 novel of the same name. And third, we visit a Brooklyn Museum exhibit, We Wanted a Revolution, Black Radical Women During Second Wave Feminism. And then... In our Slate Plus segment, for you Slate Plus members, we will discuss Anderson Cooper's eye roll that went viral. Does that rhyme or not? His eye roll that <laughs> you, went viral. You, can, you say it, it does. Yeah, you can get away with it in like a rap verse if you wanted. Right. Uh-huh. All right. I'll try and talk slow like Jay-Z and it'll be like, eye roll that went viral. It doesn't really work. Anyway. That was good. If you're not a, <laughs> that was pretty good? Okay, good. If you're not a Slate Plus member, please sign up at slateplus.com slash xxplus to support us and all the great work that Slate does. Okay. Let's get going. In this weekend's New York Times Magazine, Susan Dominus. It's weird to call you Susan Dominus since you're here. I'm just going to say Susan. Whatever you uh, like. Go, I'm fine. <laughs> whatever I like. Sue, I'm Susan. Goes, <laughs> polynamorous. That's good. Um, goes deep with several couples who are involved in open marriages, varying kind of arrangements where the couples, who are usually married, remain committed to each other as their primary partners but can sleep with other people. Is that a crude description? Is that the right description? That's right, right? Yeah, although I think people who are in those relationships would say that to limit the description to um, their ability to have sex with other people is uh, not doing justice to the depth of those relationships sometimes. So how would they describe it? Well, people who are polyamorous uh, describe it as um, people having loving and sexual relationships with other people. But how you define loving, of course, is, you know, 
that's also very, very variable. So why don't you just describe for people the, the there's sort of a main couple in your story, just basically how they came to the open marriage and how they acclimated to it, basically, and then what it looks like in practice. The main couple I followed is a couple um, that had been married for many, many years and had two teenage kids and I think really do love each other quite a bit and would never think about breaking up their family. But the husband definitely was sort of unhappy with their sex life. I think the wife lost interest pretty dramatically at a certain point, And he felt very lonely in that and had even, um, you know, he'd read about open marriages like many people have, and he'd even suggested it. And it wasn't that she thought it was like the craziest idea in the world. She just was afraid of losing him. And it just didn't, um, wasn't something she wanted to do. Um, So he tabled it. Um, And then this sort of dramatic thing happened in their lives, which is that the wife was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And I think had a real sort of um, carpe diem moment. And she met a man um, at a Parkinson's event and they started having a relationship, which she thought was going to be okay with her husband because he'd wanted an open relationship all along. And now he could see other people. Um, And in fact, it wasn't presented to him as so much of a choice. And he was very unhappy. And then they really had to do like a lot of uh, conversation around it in order to get to a place where he felt comfortable with it once again. And um, and so I followed the way that um, their relationships outside of the marriage changed their marriage and um, was waiting to see if it would destroy it. And um, I have to say, I'm sure this is, would, would not be the outcome for all couples, but they definitely had a closer uh, relationship at the end of a year, and they definitely had a better sex life. It's so interesting because that, that, that couple, I guess my impression of open marriage, and I've read a lot about it, well, for example, like in Emily Witt's book, Future Sex, like I think of it as people who start out with a philosophy. And I've actually known people like that. They're all younger than me. But I, you know, I am, I, I believe in open marriages, and so I'm going to find someone to marry who believes in open marriages, and then we're going to have this open marriage. Um, and and it's essentially a lifestyle with a full worldview. Um, and, and and this was slightly different. These were people who would, who just kind of came to it because of life events. And I'm not sure which one is typical. Mm. I don't think there is any one typical, although I think you're right with young people today. I think that among young people, there are growing. I mean, I can't document it. Nobody's really studied this. But even if you just look at the dating apps, there's this sense that like, you know, people describe themselves as consensually non-monogamous. That was language that did not exist um, in the 90s when I was dating. I mean, there was no way to sort of neutrally characterize yourself as somebody who wanted to see a lot of people, but didn't, um, you know, think that was a problem. That was, there was no way to, how would you have described yourself back then? So I do think that there's language for it and culture for it among young people. And then, um, you know, I'm sure that there are people of uh, my generation, I'm in my mid forties who started out that way fairly young in their lives. But um, I think that was a really small subsection uh, back then. I think many more people come to it because they've been, at least many more people in our generation are, if they're there now, it's because something happened in their marriage or in their life that made them curious and want to try it. Noreen, do you have open marriage chatter in your set, like your friends who are getting married now? Um, I know, I don't, not people who are getting married, but I do know a couple of people who are in open marriages and one person who was in an open marriage that ended disastrously. Um, but I would say that that as a generation, people are very like steeped in the uh, the Dan Savage idea of monogamish, right? Like even people who don't practice it themselves are very, very open to the idea that you know monogamy is a construct and humans aren't meant to live this way. And and then often it comes down to one person or the other being like, yeah, but like why don't we live this way? But but I would say that um, 
I do see a generational difference. And maybe that's just because I have blinders on from my own, you know, just surroundings. But um, I think more and more people are going into marriage with the idea that, like, um, I don't know how to put it, that that, uh, monogamy is not the right ideal, even if they are going to, you know, themselves try to do it. So, Susan, I was really (laughs) I loved that you put yourself in your story. I I really, really deeply appreciated that. (laughs) Like even the small vignette of like telling your husband, like when you had lunch with that guy at the conference and you you didn't tell your husband the truth about that. It was dinner. Sorry. (laughs) Which felt really different, actually. (laughs) It's like the Mike Pence test. I know. It's interesting. I, I But you didn't tell him. No, I didn't tell him. And what's funny about it is that Alan, my husband, is like really secure in our relationship and not a jealous person at all. So I almost think I didn't tell him for my own sort of um, enjoyment rather than because I thought it would hurt him. It's a little bit hard to know, actually. Um, I, you know, in other words, who can plumb the depths of their own souls? I don't know exactly why I didn't tell him in that moment, but I think it was definitely, you know, partly you're reporting on open marriage and then you have dinner with a man at a conference in a hotel and you feel self-conscious about it. Like these, these topics are on your mind. So that might be the main reason I didn't mention it to him. But um, yeah. And then eventually I, I did talk to him about it um, right before the piece went to press. <laughs> As the fact checker called. <laughs> uh, a few days short of that. But yeah, exactly. It's I mean, the hard part from I probably have the same sort of orientation as you have, like theoretically, like in my head, you know, I read all this stuff and I'm on board. I think this evolutionary mating men are like this. Women are like this stuff is bullshit. I'm totally on board with Daniel Bergner, Esther Perel. I actually know them both. Dan Savage yeah. is a friend. And I like I've, I've I've sat through Dan Savage's lecture about monogamish and throughout the whole lecture. I'm like, yeah, yes. yeah, right. You're to- yeah, right you're on, totally brother. right, man. Yeah. Exactly. And then but like <laughs> but like my heart. Heart is not there. Like I just, I just fundamentally, like I, I, you know, though my head is there, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Like my sympathies were with Joseph, the boyfriend of, um, of, of the woman in your couple oh, who yeah. doesn't tell his wife because he's like protective of her or something. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. not my sympathies were with him, but I somehow kind of understood him instinctively. Like he had some. It's something like he understood the power of jealousy and the protectiveness of marriage. He's old fashioned, so maybe. Maybe I'm old fashioned. I don't really know. But um, but but do you know what I mean about like you can follow intellectually? Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. And I kept thinking because one of the reasons I wanted to do this story was to figure out well, what is it? How do they how do people cross this line? Because it seems so prohibitive to me. And it does feel even though I also don't believe in, you know, I have certain, you know, I'll put limits on how much uh, I don't take that much stock in evolutionary psychology. But at the same time, um my feelings about it do feel so primal and visceral. And of course, primal feelings can be social constructs, too. But it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's easy to go from there to a place that like, yeah, maybe I really am just personally hardwired for monogamy because I was totally on board with it intellectually. I don't see why having sex with other people necessarily has to destroy um, a relationship that doesn't seem obvious to me at all. But, um, you know, whenever my husband and I have talked about it, you know, the conversation always ends with, but please just don't do it. <laughs> you know, it's just it's like, a, I mean, you know, and then there's other things that people have written in about that I completely identify with as well, which is I don't have enough time with my husband as it is. I don't feel like I have enough time with my kids it is, as it is. If I had more free time, I'd probably want to like read a book. I mean, I think people have just different levels in, of interest in like sensation seeking and novelty and in people, you know, like, um, you know, 
you know, our family is like very boundaried. We don't even really vacation with other families. Like I'm not the kind of person who's always like, invite all those five kids to sleep over Friday night. You know, it's, I'm, I'm just sort of somebody who likes to kind of, um, uh, go to bed early is the bottom line. <laughs> One thing I thought was super interesting was, okay, you guys are both women. You're saying that it's it's great intellectually, but it's not quite for you. But actually what Daniel Bergner has written and what you seem to see bearing out in these relationships is that it's often women leading the way. It's women who sort of in the middle of a relationship need the novelty to get interested in sex again. That's definitely what Daniel Bergner thinks. And <laughs> I, I can see that as well. I think that also... Um, you know, I wondered how much of it was women wanting the sex and how much of it was women, as I put in the piece, doubling down on like on relationships mm-hmm. and on intimacy or um, I mean, in some scenarios, the women were married to men who had much bigger jobs, who interacted with the world in an exciting way on a, or, a, or a meaningful way on daily on a daily basis. And they either had sort of quiet careers or they were working from home. And this was sort of a way of interacting with the world and feeling like an adult and getting away from their role as like um, chief cook and bottle washer. And um, some of them were pretty articulate about that. It's It was a way of it was a form of adventure, but it was – and also I think sometimes men were settling for okay relationships and women were not okay with that. I mean the thing that I found beautiful about it – and Noreen, I'm not actually like – like I am a bring all the people in and have the five kids sleep over and the more relationships the better kind of person. Um, it's just that – it's just the kind of raw visceral thing I can't get past, like the raw visceral jealousy and um, it, it just seems so powerful. On the other hand, when people did cross the line, one thing I found beautiful about the relationships you described is the kind of communal once they go so far over the other line that the guy moves into the house you know and you have this kind of because I actually have a communal child rearing situation it's probably the most like beautiful thing in my life we have this other family and we essentially are like one family and and it is um, it is like this idea that you just so far cross over that everybody becomes friends and goes out to dinner and lives in the same house and trades children um, and becomes just one big <laughs> tribal village where certain people are sleeping with other people one night and then not the next night. Because what you described about how it takes away time, it felt to me like the people who really do this right, it's actually multiplies time and intimacy. So the original couple kind of gains in in sexual pleasure and intimacy from this new intimacy. It's not a zero-sum game, right? It's not like the, the we don't call it the affair, but it's not like the second relationship takes away from the first. Isn't that what, what these guys were trying to say, that it adds to the first? Yeah, I think in an ideal world, that's true. And I also think that for the, I wrote about three people who lived together in Austin, and I think for that um, wife who was, you know, raising a small child while her husband was working long hours, it, it she felt so much more supported having another person living with them. And I think that the husband felt really happy that she was getting that support and that she wasn't miserable and lonely, um, sort of watching her kid, uh, you know, at the playground um, day after day. And he was happy that his wife was happier. It was that simple for him. Hmm. What about couples where it doesn't work out quite as well? So so I had this friend who was in an open marriage. She started seeing someone. Her husband got super jealous and, quote, removed his consent and she kept going. And it just like torpedoed the whole thing. How common was that in 
in uh, the relationships that you looked at? That particular scenario wasn't exactly what happened, but I, there was one of the couples I did follow for a year did end up divorcing. And I think that one of the reasons I didn't write more about them from the beginning is because it was something that the wife really, really wanted and the husband really, really wanted to keep the relationship together. And he was sort of... Um, it was, you know, just what people who are counselors about open marriages say not to do, which is um, do it only to, you know, as a way of clinging to your spouse. Um, but then he had this over the course of the year, he had this incre- these incredible experiences. I mean, he he had recently um, had bariatric surgery and lost a lot of weight and was suddenly quite attractive to women and, um, you know, was able to have a relationship with this extremely beautiful from his description woman in his office whom he'd long admired. And his wife was totally on board with it. And he um you know he had some sort of wonderful lost weekends with this woman they had a they had a three way with the wife i mean it all sounded like wow and his and his relationship with his wife did get better um and their sex got better i mean like much much better and but at the end of the day he just really didn't like it it just was not for him mm-hmm. and after a year oh i know what happened he finally met somebody he was really smitten with and she just couldn't be with a married man and he realized he was going to keep falling in love with people who didn't want to be with him because he was married and he realized that he was doing this for his wife and he had to put his own happiness first so it was really sad because i think they really do love each other and they just had very different sexual needs and ideas about relationships but so that was one and the other one was an open marriage in which the young woman um, I was interviewing had permission to see people when her husband was away. I think that's pretty common, like and, having rules of that kind. Yes, there's lots of rules. Um, and there, some people have the vampire rule, you have to be home by midnight. <laughs> and she, um, but anyway, she was having sex with other men when her husband was in town. So just like, you know, just as if you're lying to your spouse about anything, it's probably not going to work out. If you're doing something and, you know, flagrant violation of what your spouse has explicitly asked you not to do, probably things aren't going to work out in general. So listeners, if you have any stories to share about open marriages, your own open marriages of your friends, um, I mean, don't tattle on your friends, but you know, interesting (laughs) stories, experiences with open marriage, please do share them with us. I'm super curious about this. I can't quite decide personally if this is the future of marriage or if it remains just like a subset of marriage or still a fringe thing that people are embarrassed to have their names in the New York Times magazine associated with. Like, I just can't tell which direction this is going in. Um, But I am curious. I think it's a subset, not fringe anymore, is what I would say. I mean, again, maybe Brooklyn glasses are on, but but I think there is like a critical mass of people, people who grew up listening to Dan Savage, frankly, like, um, I think straight people have absorbed a lot of good advice from him. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Dan Savage. Once again, we have so much to thank Dan Savage for. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. All right, our next topic. I love Dick. It's the new Amazon series based on the 1997 fictive memoir. I don't even know if that's a word, fictive, but that's what it is, um, of the same name. The series was created by Jill Soloway. It starts Catherine Hahn as Chris Krauss, a stifled artist who channels her creativity into a series of love letters to Dick, who's a cowboy artist. Let's start with the Chris Krauss character, Catherine Hahn. In Transparent, Jill Soloway's other fabulous series, 
she plays the rabbi who's kind of the island of sanity. Um, she's the buffer against the Pfeffermans. Here, she's the opposite. She is. <laughs> she's like explosion and chaos and, you know, non-sanity on evidence. Um, so so, so, what can you describe, Noreen, the Chris Kraus as played by Catherine Hahn character, her various modes and, and just kind of set the scene for us in Marfa, which is where Jill Soloway chose to have the story unfold? Yeah. So she's this experimental filmmaker who had been, you know, in episode one, she and her husband are in Brooklyn and she's getting ready to go off to, I think it's the Venice Film Festival. It's some European film festival. Her film is rejected because she's screwed up the music licensing. So she ends up having to accompany her husband to Marfa where he has a fellowship. So all of a sudden she's not in the mode of like, you know, her own she's not someone who is coming with her own sort of set of um, work to do there she's just the spouse and even and, and her work is sort of ignored so she's put into this like um, helpmate position um, and she's sort of uh, it, she's a mix of self-possessed and awkward I would say um, maybe self-possessed isn't quite the right word but sometimes she'll just really go for it and say things um, but she also sort of like bumbles around and, and is clearly flustered by things. Um, but yeah, she's super taken by Kevin Bacon, Kevin Bacon as a, like a cowboy Donald Judd figure in Marfa. And she just like can't contain herself around him. Like there's one scene, I don't know if you guys got this far, but there's one scene where he's reading something she's shown him or he's looking at something on the computer that she's showing him. And she literally just like, like grabs his head and starts stroking his head really, really quickly in this like animal kind of way. And he just says no. And there's almost not that much made of the moment, but it's just this, it's just this strange thing that she can't contain herself. So she is sort of just having... And you get the sense that she hasn't done this before, right? Because then the the couple goes into this um, very, very strange shared experience of writing uh, combination intellectual erotic letters to Dick. Um, I think, I mean, I think like the weirdest part about the whole thing is the... um, the sharedness of the the experiment, the fact that the couple is doing it together, the, that she brings in her husband in this commitment to intellectual openness in her marriage to, to her, like, you know, crush is so that's what's radical about it to me. Well, we didn't know this when we picked these two topics together, but yes. it is total overlap. Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> it's a variation on open marriage. I mean, they even talk about open marriage in one scene, like why exactly the conversation that we had, like, we believe in this. Mm-hmm. Like, why don't we just do it, you know? Um, so so, so it is, we are in the same genre and territory. Um, you do get the sense that she hasn't done this exact thing before, but you do get this, you don't, she's a person who is in touch with her unrestrained appetites you know um like jill soloway says i only want to write about somewhat unlikable jewish women having really appropriate ideas about life and sex (laughs) inappropriate (laughs) yes and there's a great (laughs) that you did there's a great episode i don't know if you guys got this far but i think my favorite episode so far is one where they give sort of like the erotic backstory of all the female characters on the show it's great it's it's just like and hers is very like i have always been sexual kind of thing so, so um, Susan, given what you have been writing about and thinking about, what did you make of this couple? 
I was pretty fascinated. I mean, you know, the thing is that there is this thing that happens with couples, and sometimes they were uncomfortable talking about it, but that the idea that their spouse was turned on by somebody else or that somebody else was turned on by that spouse was for them a very big turn on. So that wasn't that surprising to me to see that dynamic play out in the in their sex lives. But then there was this interesting moment when she's going to take a class with Dick um, or try to take a class with him, and her husband gets really uncomfortable with it because now it was actually crossing the line from fantasy to some kind of reality, and she says, what happened? happened in there, pointing at the bedroom, had nothing to do with him. That's ours. He's not part of that. Um, and, um, you know, I, I gather from what you guys are saying, eventually she gets to the point where he's uh, she's not really lying about that. But he was part of that. And it was spilling over. So there was, she wasn't at the point of honesty yet at that point, for sure. Yeah. I mean, she it's it's an intense obsession she has, the way she looks at him, the way he unsettles her. I mean, it's really interesting, I think, to see on screen. The book is much more restrained because it's mostly a series of letters. And actually, in the book, her husband is more participatory from the beginning. He's almost egging her on and he's kind of taking the intellectual lead at least in the beginning of the book the novel um and that's not at all true here like one decision jill soloway made is to set this in marfa so it's a fairly contained setting and they're all like 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 likely to bump into each other a lot which was an excellent decision um and another one is to kind of put in play dynamics that that are that make everything unstable at every moment, just like in Transparent. So the husband is perpetually jealous and non kind of participatory and kind of not participatory. She ranges from like like really awkward to like fuck you, Dick. I'm an artist. You know you can't yeah. take away my woman artistness to like just such an intense kind of sexual obsession. Um, and and we're not going to give everything away, anything away. We're going to try not to give any plot points. We're going to not. <laughs> give any plot points away not try because we're professionals but um but <laughs> we have restraint <laughs> restraint we have restraint but the point i mean the way everyone writes about i love dick the reason it's been this kind of obsession for feminist theorists and also for the regular reading public for you know all of these years these i guess 20 years is because um because somehow it's supposed to represent a just kind of female, um, unrestrained sexual appetite and obsession in, in full bloom that goes kind of through crazy and out the other side. Yeah. You know? It's a it's like the female gaze gone mad. But but it's also more complicated than that, right? Because she can't just like want dick. She has to intellectualize it and she has to make it into a project and it turns into like, you know, part of part of what she's feeling when she goes to Marfa is feeling it sees creatively and intellectually and probably compared to her husband, who is, you know, starting this big prestigious fellowship. And so she doesn't just like try to start an affair. She writes about the feeling of wanting to start an affair and she ropes in, you know, anyone possible to to like participate and think through this experience with her. So it's a little more complicated than just simply like unrestrained aggressiveness like she in some way is reveling in her own awkwardness about it i also felt like it really didn't happen in a in a vacuum that there was a reason why this was happening at this point in her life i mean there, you know she's one of the first things you know about her she tells dick she's straddling 40 you know it's like a big moment for women she's just you know had the chance of her lifetime which was to be in the venice film festival and then she blew that who knows if the opportunity will ever come again so i i felt like her mortality crushing down on her sort you know and there's also a moment when she says something like you know 
there has to be something to look forward to. And so it, it, it felt like very existential to me that she was trying to, you know, Tennessee Williams said something like the opposite of death is desire. And that's a lot of what I was seeing and where she was going with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like Jill Soloway often sets herself the task of, you know, conveying ideas that could be intellectualized and trying to it's a challenge to to make someone to make to, to make a to make a series about um, a set of letters, you know, <laughs> that are so kind of intellectual and philosophical and about an idea and about women and art, but yet somehow make it funny and come to life and real, which I actually think she totally accomplished in this. Um, what do you make of the unpleasantness of her, like many of the Pfeffermans, how she's constantly testing whether you uh could possibly like her or not. I don't know that that's my first react. Like to me, it's not about likability or not. It's about this, the way she makes me feel intensely uncomfortable in the scene, which isn't necessarily mean that I don't like her or not. It's just like, I'm not quite covering my face through my hands when she like, you know, goes and rubs Dick's head, but like I'm a little bit doing that. And that's more (laughs) the feeling that it gets in me. Whereas with the Pfeffermans, they're like mean and cruel to each other. She's not cruel. She's just like, um, wanton, imploding. wanton, yeah, yeah, imploding. Like she's she's sort of clearly at sea herself, which actually makes you kind of side with her. Well, just the fascination of like what will happen next, you know? Like yeah, yeah. Like what crazy thing will she do? I will watch just to find out. Like, yeah, you she... are nervous. Yeah. Well, also because someone so full of sexual energy, her body is so awkward. Like the way Catherine Hahn plays her, the way she walks is awkward. Her shoulders are awkward. She's not. She's not like walking on the earth like a woman imbued with sexual energy. She's, mm-hmm. she's having sex with her husband that way. Like those scenes are sexy. But the whenever she's in the presence of Dick, she really couldn't be less sexy in how she holds herself. She moves into moments of trance, and then she's overtaken by that energy. But mostly it's like she's she's tripping and stumbling, and then like there's one scene where she goes and starts dancing crazily. But it's never quite sensual. It's like, it's just the energy is just crazy, you yeah, know? That's a great it's all point. An angle. That's a great point. I also think she's really obviously a beautiful woman, but she somehow does not always... Um, I like the fact that they're, that she's not... You know, she's not ravishing the way television characters often are. Even even though she is beautiful, they almost seem to be playing that down at times. And the idea that, you know, she could be incredibly sort of, um, I mean, I th- to see a woman who's, it's a little bit complicated because, of course, she is objectively beautiful. But they're, I think they're playing that down deliberately in things like the body language, which is so much a part of how you see a woman's desirability. And yet you're you, you're being asked to see her as a deeply sexual object. You don't always really see that in film or television. That is a point in the novel is she says, oh, I'm not the kind of, Chris Krause says, I'm not the kind of woman who this kind of man would find attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it's a thing. Like, it's not supposed to be completely obvious that she's the sexual creature on set. But she also says, you know, in the novel that she's reached a point in her life where she just doesn't care anymore. It's more like, it's not like, does he want me or not? Or it's like, is he game or not? You right, know? right. Which is interesting. Yeah. Like, on the page, she is able to be um, so swaggering herself, you know, kind of a feminist cowboy of sorts. And then, of course, in, in person, as you said, like, awkward, you know, tugging at her clothes kind of thing. Last thing I want to talk about, their art, like her art and his art. 
Uh, are we meant? The book has a great digression about bad art and, the, and what's great about bad art, um, and how it allows viewers to engage. Basically, because because like there's that one scene of the two guys watching her film, and they're just basically like, "This is shit," you know. Um, and it means that like you you're not a passive viewer of say like a, a purely polished Steven Spielberg film. You're like a very active engager with the shitty art. Are we supposed to think that her art is bad, or just like an expression of her, or, like it's kind of porny? I mean, what what are we supposed to think about her art? I think you are supposed to think it's kind of bad. And you're. I think you're also supposed to think that she feels constricted by needing to make it seem deep. Like there's a scene where she's like, I like uh, Spielberg. Like, And she names Coppola. all... Coppola. Yeah. Not Sophia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not Sophia. That's such a great moment. And, and like she herself has been trying to like, okay, like I can't just make like a story driven thing that people want to see. I have to make it... I have to make people think I'm smart through and deep through my film, you know, and represent female oppression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. And then his art, sort of, he's in a moment where, um, I mean, he's just supposed to be. He's in one sense the object of the female gaze. There's all <laughs> there's all these great sort of porny fantasy things that are just unfurling in her own head, but which they make Kevin Bacon actually enact, which are so fabulous, you know, just like him walking about carrying an animal. Like or, a lamb, you know, doing, a lamb. Like doing these like super hilariously porny, sexy cowboy things, you know, which are so great. Um, but he also has an artistic block, Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, he he is actually he he emerges as a person with a personality more in the novel than here where they really do make him just an object. But um, but what is he? He I mean, I think he's meant to stand in for like great man artist, right, who like puts a puts a rock on a pedestal and everyone, you know, lines up to pay him millions of dollars for it. And this whole industry like, you know, surrounds him and is ready to celebrate him. Um, And I don't know. I don't know if the show weighs in on whether he's good or not. Like, I mean, The Rock is obviously a joke. Like, The the Rock the, the, is just like a funny... The brick. Oh, the brick. The brick. Sorry. The brick yeah. is a... It's a straight line, honey. Rocks have curves. <laughs> the brick. Um, the brick is obviously meant to be, you know, just like a punchline. But then they show some bigger sculptures. And maybe I just like big open-air sculptures. But I was like, oh, I could... I can get behind that. I, I think that there, there's, I mean, no one's art is treated with any respect in, in this show, <laughs> so true. far as I can tell, except, I mean, maybe we'll see that this play that Dev, the character Devin is writing will turn out to be genius. But, I mean, when you hear Silver talk about his work on um, the Holocaust at dinner with Dick and his wife, you know, it's totally cringe-inducing. And, I, and, and you know, and I, I think that's Jill Soloway. That's the artist commenting on her own art and yeah and there, take any of it too seriously and there's a character who's introduced to silver and she's like i love the holocaust like they're just their lines like that that are funny it's not as funny as transparent i will say so it's a slightly different vibe than transparent it's kind of dreamy and spacey and like the visuals are very cool and it's yeah. like specific to its social set and the way that transparent is also but it's not i didn't find it myself as like sort of laugh out loud like sharp. I do love how she populated Marfa with totally. these great characters. Like, not just the characters who show up at Marfa, the artist colony, but just the people of Marfa. I think that, that that was like a delightful choice to make it this little contained world. Yes. Well, I uh, how about we say this for our listeners? They should check it out. It's really interesting. If you're interested in subjects we talk about, it's interesting. So try it out. Right? Yeah, that's, for that's sure. Good. Definitely. That's for sure. Yeah. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Our next segment is the anti-Dick segment because the women get to make the art that he denied us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, Noreen and June and our producer, Vera Lynn, went on a field trip to the Brooklyn Museum to an exhibit called We Wanted a Revolution. It's about women of color whose art inspired and influenced the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And sadly, though I wasn't there, it seemed like they had a great time because I listened to the tape. So how did it go, Noreen? It was really fun. Um, we spoke to the cur- one of the co-curators of the exhibition, as well as another museum employee who felt a really strong connection to the work. And we learned a lot. And it was also just like a beautiful way to spend a morning. A lot of the a lot of the work was really just stunning on the wall. Okay, so what is the first thing we're going to hear about from your visit? So the tape starts when we are walking into one of the galleries, an exhibition, and we come across a painting by an artist named Howardina Pindell. All right, here we go. My name is Fatima Jones, and I'm the director of public relations here at the Brooklyn Museum, also a woman of color. Please note, this section of the exhibit contains explicit content. Where's the explicit content? Let's see that. <laughs> okay. okay. And, and this is the artist that your daughter was vibing yeah. with, right? You know, I think for people who may not be familiar with these artists or black women artists, it's refreshing to kind of see some atypical artwork from these women. Um, Beautiful works, yeah. And very abstract. I feel like, you know, men get all the credit for doing abstract impressionism, but not in this room. Within the abstract, I can kind of see, like, rope imagery or braid imagery, which kind of picks up on what's in the other room. So it feels also quite, like, it's abstract, but there's this... Yeah, I mean, I think abstract in a way that um, means that there's no particular hard story that is, you know, universal for everyone. Like, I see fish and water here. You know what I mean? Everyone yeah, will yeah. see something yeah, different, yeah. and that's what's great. You know, I'm sure Habadina has a, She can give you probably more of what her, her ideas were when she created it, but that's, like, the cool thing about some of this, that it gives people the right to have their own, own interpretation, you know. Right. Thank you. Oh, more ephemera here. Yeah. So we're, we're getting into the uh, part of the exhibition that talks a little bit about just above Midtown Gallery, which is a gallery that Linda Good Bryant started in... Um, uh, and it was uh, the one, well, probably the first owned, black-owned, black female-owned gallery in that space in that 57th Street area. And the gallery was the space where she gave an opportunity for many of these artists in this room their first exhibitions. Mm-hmm. So um, she's a really important part of um, this conversation about uh, black women artists working and presenting their, you know, their work to the world. So this is a lot of her letters and things that she was putting the gallery together. And she talked, actually, she was here recently, she talked about that no one wanted to rent space to her, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because she was a black woman. They couldn't believe that she wanted to open up a gallery. It's like, what are you doing? Are you going to show? She said that they thought that she was going to show black velvet paintings. Remember the paintings from the 70s? <laughs> the, the velvet... <laughs> 
And she's like, no, we're, no, this is art, paintings, photos, you know. So um, I think you'll see. Does she keep a lot of these letters herself? Yes. It's so interesting that so many of these artists are still alive and probably the ones that were doing the cultivating of their own history. That's right. And that is like, like when you think about like who gets to tell our stories, like we have to. That's right. And I mean, I think we have to, but also when larger organizations like the Book Museum, the Met and other organizations, when they um, are able to turn it, you know, to, to help create some archives, it, it allows our future women, future people to see the work. So it's important for us to tell our stories, but it's also important to see the importance of this stuff so that we can make sure that it's taken care of and it can be seen by people. So like my eight-year-old can say, oh, I saw that. When In her 30s, she can say, oh, I saw that piece. I saw those letters, you know. Um, yeah. And just looking at these letters, there's one that just really got to me. So she's got a PS on her letter, which is actually to her parents, and it talks about Franz Fanon having a new book, um, Black man, black, black man, white mass. And she says, it costs $5. I could have cried. If I eat one meal a day, I'll be able to buy it. Wow. Like, how... That's such a strong... Like, that's a very powerful statement in the middle of all of this. $5 was more than, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cheryl? Okay. Hi, I'm Noreen. Hi, nice Catherine. to meet you. Thank you. Hi, nice to meet you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So I'm Catherine Morris. I'm the Sackler Family Senior Curator of the Elizabeth A. Sackler Center for Feminist Art here at the Brooklyn Museum. I am a co-curator with my colleague Rujeko Hockley of the exhibition We Wanted a Revolution, Black Radical Women, 1965 to 1985. It's an exhibition that we are incredibly proud of and have been working on for about, concertedly for about a year and a half. And it's an exhibition that really grew from thinking about the 10th anniversary of the Sackler Center for Feminist Art at the Brooklyn Museum, and conceiving of exhibitions that are counter-narratives to the um, more well-known narratives of second-wave feminism, as certainly represented by the Sackler Center for Feminist Art. So we have an incredible opportunity here to present more than 40 artists um, in conversation with the ways in which feminism or feminist desires or feminist inclinations emerged in various communities um, in concert with and in opposition to the more well-known white stream, the second wave feminism. Um, Some of these artists are very well-known. Faith Ringgold is an artist whose um, presence is felt throughout this exhibition in many different guises. She was a participant in the civil rights movement, the black arts movement, the black power movement, uh, the art world, um, and beyond and always identified as a feminist. Other women did not in this exhibition. Um, The collective uh, Where We At was made up of women who came together to support each other as artists, making work, supporting each other in childcare, in thinking about how to present their work to galleries, um, and did not identify as feminist, but certainly in 2017, looking back with these artists, understanding that a lot of what they were thinking and the gestures that they were making and the commitments they were making reflect what we would call a feminist impulse, if nothing else. How do you define feminist impulse? I think feminism at its roots is a desire for equity based on gender, based on gender identification, based on a lived experience that includes oppression based on one's gender or one's sex, 
Um, and on that very simple level, I think that all of the women in this exhibition have a lot to say. They particularly have a lot to say in relationship to what we would today call intersectionality, the lived experience that includes not only oppression based on gender, but based on race, based on sexual identification, based on any number of other important variables, class being a major one as well, um, economic, um, the availability of economic options. Um, so that's another reason this exhibition feels so current. Mm-hmm. It also feels remarkably current in relationship to so many dialogues that still are ongoing. And so while that, maybe from a curatorial perspective, is exciting in the sense that it feels like a necessary conversation, it's also difficult and painful to feel like so much of what we see in the cases here and the conversations um, these artists were having within their communities feel the same. Like what? Uh, Well, for instance, you know, we worked on this exhibition for for over two years, and we could not have guessed the outcome of the most recent election and the conversations that grew in that election between who voted for Donald Trump, white women, and who voted for Hillary Clinton, black women, African-American women. So um, that's a perfect example of one of the places that um, feels strangely reflective of the conversations that happen in this exhibition between um, collectives like the Heresies Collective or AIR Gallery who were um, driven by real strong desires and intentions to change the art world. Um, The women in this show didn't want to change the art world. They wanted a revolution. (laughs) And that's where this exhibition title comes from. And um, we hope that that plays out across a really also significant transitional period in the art world. We're talking about, we're starting in 1965, the moment of activism and politics beginning to be discussed in artistic communities. In other words, how can art impact social change? Um, We start with the Spiral Group, who ultimately disbanded feeling not sure that visual arts could contribute significantly to a conversation about political change. We move into the Black Power Movement where people in Afrikobra, like Jay Jarrell right here, um, felt very strongly, in fact, that they could and they did. And then we move into the later period of the show, into the 1980s, a very different moment. Um, the culture wars happen. Um, Ronald Reagan is president. In the early part of the show, the Vietnam War is happening. Anti-colonialism is happening. Third world women are producing a conversation about what that means. Um, So the transition in art history is significant in the show as well. You move from ad hoc, street-based political action into the theorizing of the politics and postmodernism and people like Lorna Simpson and Carrie Mae Weems. Um, The Kambahi River Collective who wrote a very important statement in 1977, actually um, in a lot of ways functions as a pivot point in that history for us because that statement really envisions intersectionality in a really profound and thoughtful way very early on and um, I think represents a kind of shift in art making that is also reflected in the show. So we end the show with a a beautiful excerpt from their statement. You know, we've heard from Fatima and and read on the wall things that sometimes these are this is the first time that things have been been shown for a while some of the ephemera it's the first time it's been shown at all perhaps like can you talk about just the process of gathering all this stuff and putting it all together the process of pulling this exhibition together has been a labor of love but also a labor of um, 
communication with multiple communities and multiple people. We started off knowing uh, certainly a number of, ide- of artists that we knew we wanted to have in the show, and we invited them here about a year and a half ago to have a conversation about the show, to have a conversation about who the other artists is, were that were important to them that should be included, what were the, ta- the events, the places, the people that contributed to ongoing conversations about the intersections of art and activism, and... Um, where could we find stuff? Yeah. And as a curator, that's one of the funnest jobs, right? You get to sort of poke around in other people's files and their drawers and um, go to different institutions and different collections and, and find papers that um, bring this story to life in an incredible way. Was there one particular, like, chase that you were especially, like, was especially tricky or challenging or that you were so glad when it all paid off? Yeah. <laughs> in fact, um, the liberation of Aunt Jemima cocktail, which I think you saw in the other so room. The, the Molotov cocktail. The Molotov cocktail made out of a Gallo wine jug, that wonderful middle-class aspirational image of the <laughs> 1970s. Um, we saw a uh, note about the fact that Betty Sarr had made a Molotov cocktail in an obscure feminist journal in the 1970s. It would think it was a parenthetical comment. There wasn't even an image. And as soon as I saw that, we needed to find that object. And how amazingly lucky were we that, first of all, Betty Sarr kept incredible records, and her gallery that she's working with currently maintains and keeps incredible records. And we were able to find that piece in a private collection in New York where it has been since it was given to the current owner. He was is a lawyer who had done some work for Betty. And as a curator, that's definitely the fun stuff. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Catherine. Really appreciate your time and, and for your sharing um, some of the stories behind the exhibit. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Well, that sounded fun. I wish I were there. Uh, And now let's move on to our recommendations. Noreen, what do you have for us? I'm sort of keeping on theme with my recommendation. Just read a book called Seven Days in the Art World by Sarah Thornton. Um, It came out about 10 years ago. And she is, I believe, a trained anthropologist or at least sees the world that way. And so what she does is she breaks down sort of the big money you know, contemporary art worlds into seven different categories and walks you through each of them. Um, And she is a beautiful writer and a reporter who seems to be able to slip into any scene. So she takes you to an auction at Christie's. She takes you to a big art fair, to a gallery, to a criticism class at Cal Arts and all these all the different parts of the art world that make up you know, what what we call the art world. And I just found it super illuminating. It's explanatory without being sort of like dumbed down. It's just a beautiful book. Sounds great. And Susan, what do you have? 
would you guys rather a book or like a snack? <laughs> <laughs> Do both. Do both. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the snack I'm really into right now, they're called wisps. Okay. Like, like I must find it hard to believe that nobody has talked about wisps on this show before. Because you know, like there's this sort of fantasy that you're going to make like little Parmesan crisps before a dinner party or something like that, but like you never would. Now you can buy them in a bag. And if you're trying to do like a carb-free thing, they're like goldfish crackers, but they're carb-free and you can't eat too many of them and they're healthy and it's like real food. There's no weird fake stuff in it. And I buy them by the ginormous bag at Costco for my sister and my other friends. And we all talk <laughs> about sexy. how much we love the wisp. <laughs> the wisp. It does sound sexual. I love the wisp. <laughs> I think you just got um, that out of your mind. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> the wisp. Well, that's because my recommendation is the new Tom Parada novel, which isn't out yet, but you should pre-order it. I'm sorry. It's an annoying thing to do, but I'm reading The Galleys, and it's called Mrs. Fletcher, and it is really great. It's about this mom uh, whose son, whose beloved son, she's a single mom, goes off to college. It's very Tom Parada-ish. It's very issues of our day. I have a daughter who's about to go to college, um, and she gets this text message, you are my MILF, which is not a text message, I'm sorry to say, I've ever gotten, but it <laughs> obsesses her in various ways. And it's a lot about porn and kind of his struggles in college, and it kind of twins their experiences in a super interesting Tom Parada-ish way. So that's Mrs. Fletcher. It's fabulous. I, I would rec- I have a book I would recommend. What is it? It's not, it's not a new book. It's just a book that was a huge sort of blockbuster uh, in, in the early 80s, and probably you've all read about it. I never had, and then I did for the article, and it was called, it's Gay Talese, Thy Neighbor's Wife, and it is definitely, there are things about it that okay. are like so irritating. I mean, just the very name is so, it's so clearly written from the man's point of view. View. But some of the writing's amazing. The reporting, I mean, whether it's accurate or not, we'll never know. But it was so detailed and fascinating. And just the history of sexuality, um, the sort of transformation of American sexuality over the previous decade, um, to which it was published. I don't know. I just was glad I had a chance to check that it out. That is my favorite nonfiction book, even in all its flaws and kind of, it is? you know, irritation. It is fabulous. I mean, I wish to start a book the way he started that book. That is the most brilliant opening of a nonfiction book ever is kind of transmitting that you are deep it start the the opening chapter is as a scene of a boy trying to get away from his parents so he can go masturbate to his new porn magazine and it's just i i love that book in so many ways anyway i think it's fabulous maybe one day we can have a thy neighbor's wife um retro discussion we should do that that book so much that'd be fun i love that book yeah, I've read it many times. Uh, well, that is our show for today. Thank you to our producer, Verilyn Williams, the executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers, the chief content officer of the Panoply Network, and our intern, Daniel Schrader. The Double X Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash XX. Facebook is Facebook.com slash Double X Gab Fest. Or you can email us at doublexgabfest at slate.com. This week, we'd like to hear your observations and comments about open marriages. And as always, please send us ideas and things you'd like us to talk about. You can subscribe on iTunes or any place you get your podcasts and leave comments so other people can find out about the show. For Susan and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen, and we will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, 
Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.